In the face of the current atrocities perpetrated against the Ukrainian people by the government of Russia, we want to make you all aware of an opportunity to provide free therapy to those most impacted by the war in Ukraine. The organization called It's Complicated has created a platform for therapists from all around the world to offer their services for free. Particularly if you speak Ukrainian or Russian, please consider creating a profile at itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. It's Complicated is providing a secure online platform to conduct the sessions and will match people needing support with available therapists free of charge. Please consider creating a profile to provide free therapy to those impacted by the war. Go to itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. We want to give you an update about somatic integration and processing trainings coming up. SIP-1 and SIP-2 are both approved for 21 NBCC hours, and we have big news. They are also each approved for 10 hours of approved advanced credit through MDRIA. So if you're working on your EMDR certification, SIP trainings can count towards your needed advanced training hours. We're so excited to be able to offer this to all of you. More exciting news is that we're offering SIP-1 for an Australian time zone. On July 22nd through the 24th, we will host a virtual training starting at 7 a.m. UTC plus 10. If you're in another time zone, you're welcome to attend this one as well. But we've had so many people from Australia reach out about SIP that we wanted to make it more accessible for all of you. We also have SIP-1 available in American time zones on June 23rd through the 25th, and again on October 20th through the 22nd. Go to our website for all this info and more at beyondhealingcenter.com or email us at trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. Thanks so much. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Welcome back to Notice That, the EMDR podcast. It is Jen, Melissa, and myself, Bridger, in the studio today, as always with our producer, Jamie. Um, wave, Jamie. Well, they can't see you, but... <laughs> Jamie waved. Jamie waved. She, she said hello. Um, today, we are going to talk about um, something that uh, is within the realm of case conceptualization when working with EMDR, and our shorthand for this is human as organism. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of uh, different teaching elements and tools that we've done um, over the course of our institute that uh, talks about how humans are not just like brains on a stick, Mm -hmm. but that we are like an embodied whole brain. And so that's what we're going to talk about today as it is relevant to case conceptualizing through the eight phases of EMDR. Uh, but before we get into that, let's talk about another thing that we do. That's, a, that's mm-hmm. the most famous or most commonly used phrase, I think. But before on... we, yeah, <laughs> that goes on a t-shirt. Every, yeah, but before so. we talk about that, period. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. Dot, dot, dot. yes. Um, let's talk about The Evidence-Based Therapist, which is a podcast that we do that's a part of Beyond Healing Media um, that is sort of uh, one of the sister podcasts to this. Um, mm-hmm. We created this podcast because, well, I think for a couple of reasons, but one is that we wanted to be able to speak to the 
field of psychotherapy more broadly than just is relevant to EMDR. And we wanted to do that through this um, kind of well-known acronym of EBT, evidence-based mm-hmm. therapies. Mm-hmm. Um, we also kind of have a little bit of, uh, you know, friction point with that because what the academic realm deems evidence-based isn't always what the clinician would say is evidence-based. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to kind of just step into that um, fray with our own lens because all, you know, a majority of our uh, institute staff at least are all uh, pursuing academic interest in some way, if not directly involved with the writing of a lot of the trainings that we do. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to just hit record on some of these conversations where we're going to walk through different resources that we're going through. Mm -hmm. And so we've got like 15 or 16 episodes now. Is it that? Wow. Yeah, it is. Um, That have been recorded uh, and 12 or 13 of them have been released, which is Mm -hmm. really exciting. Um, But that is a podcast where it's uh, Caleb, Melissa and I, uh, and some variation, some of all three of us are there sometimes, but then sometimes it's just Caleb and I. And we talk about uh, academic resources and how that pertains to psychotherapy and what um, is, you know, some of the topics we've talked about so far is like, what is attachment theory? Mm -hmm. What is dissociation? What Mm -hmm. is intersubjectivity? What is dependency Mm -hmm. in psychotherapy? What is What is interpersonal neurobiology? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And we're coming up on a series now specific to what is embodiment, which is very exciting. So um, we wanted to give some time to that on this podcast because it is the place where we can uh, just kind of really throw away any sort of like limits on Mm -hmm. what resources we can talk about. On notice that we wanted to keep it very specific to EMDR because that's what so many uh, people have come to this podcast for and what we wanted it to stay true to. And so the evidence-based therapist is our uh, like much larger context that we can just Cut loose. Cut loose. That's right. <laughs> Cut loose. Yeah. And we do. And we sure do. Yeah. One yeah. of the things that we have, you know, gotten feedback on is there's a lot of listeners that have desired longer episodes. Um, and with notice that we've kind of stay co- stayed committed to the, you know, 45 minute ish range for yeah. episodes, but we do not hold ourselves to that no. in EBT. We just go. I think and... <laughs> the average like episode length is like an hour and 10 minutes or something. Yeah, yeah. and there's several of them that are probably... Hour 30. Yeah, an hour and really, 30. they're broken down into multiple episodes. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Each article, sometimes yes. there's multiple parts. Yes, because right. there's so much yeah. to talk about. Yeah. And so Jen, much you've rich, listened richness. to a couple oh, of these. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> <laughs> so then, oh, this is sweet. an amazing opportunity. Jen, <laughs> tell us... one of our biggest fans. Yeah, tell us about your experience with the evidence-based therapist. Well, while I was painting my house this weekend, I listened to a few episodes. Ooh. No, really, I have, um, I don't think I've listened to all, you said there's 15 now? Those are all like on the drive. Yeah, I think 12 there's 12 that are released. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I have not listened to all of them, but most of them. And it really is, it does feel like you just get this exposure to scholarly articles that mm-hmm. I would not find or choose to pick up on my own. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but okay. if I could be painting my house and then also consuming that material. Right. Mm. And absolutely. And, and more than just hearing the information, the article, hearing like little snippets and then this deep dive into the way that you guys understand it and the way that that then integrates into the therapy room Mm. and relationship Mm -hmm. and all these other pieces brought in with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it is really, really helpful and it's neat to get that exposure and experience, um, with material like that, that Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't pick up those articles and read them myself initially, but there have been some now I'm like, Ooh, 
Maybe I'm going to go back and read that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that, you know, the tagline that we came up with for that podcast, like this one is notice that is an EMDR podcast where EBT is where we read. So you don't have to. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, kind of like tongue in cheek a little bit because we want you to read, but we understand just as Jen, you were saying, even somebody who is um, very academically interested, Mm -hmm. you don't have a lot of time or a regular habit of going and looking at what's the journal of traumatology saying right now. And sometimes it's, it's literally just the access, right? So, I mean, you and I are at a huge advantage when it Mm -hmm. comes to research because we have access to academic journals through our programs and there's a lot of that that's like behind the academic mystery wall of i'm sorry you're not allowed to read all of this research 65 dollars for this one article one article no i don't before even knowing if it's going to be relevant to the work that you do no hell no no (laughs) so i mean it it really isn't you know that people are not interested or willing to take the time to consume the research is that we have some institutionalized habits of making it unavailable and -hmm. thank you google scholar for doing what you do however there's frontiers in psychology that's an open access journal Yes, and and you can like tell them what you're interested in, and they'll like forward you articles every day of hey, you might like this. Um, so definitely, that's a good check option. that out. Yeah, um, that's not a sponsored ad. <laughs> no, it's we really have to not. say that we do have to say <laughs> we, that it's, it's not true. sponsored. It's not sponsored, but we really just like it. We do. Um, but yeah, I think one of my favorite things about doing EBT is that it creates a practice of uh, consuming and digesting research regularly. Um, and we try to do it in a way that kind of bridges that gap um, between academic rigor, because we believe in that, but yes. also um, connecting it to practical application and to the lived life of the real therapist. And um, that's a pretty big chasm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so one of our hopes is that we we bring that a little bit closer and that we make it accessible for you guys. Um, and, you know, you'll hear us bigger about how much do we really need to talk about what ANOVA is versus ANCOVA. <laughs> Don't get on this. <laughs> I think we all why need not? to talk about it all the time, but <laughs> and I'm not sure why it's who relevant listens at all. to me. <laughs> Everybody apparently, because I had someone tell me recently, I'm one of those ones that wanted to know about yes. Anova versus Ancoba. Yes. I stand corrected. You're not the only human in the world that cares, Bridger. There's one other. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. Needed to say that on air. Uh, so all of that to say, listen to EBT yes. because we have fun. Well, yeah. And uh-huh. just one last comment just about, you know, as um, somebody like I've taught research methods for a number of years now. And um, one of my deepest passions is to help people see the actual like life that exists inside research. There's so many of these connotations about research and research methods that's like dusty or like too hard or too like or too irrelevant. Analytical. Like what what does this have to do with me? Yeah. yeah. And I yeah, and I would say there is unfortunately like a lot of research that is that way, but when we start to approach um the scientific method and just people in general um with this lens of how can I understand the process of being human in this phenomenon that we're encountering right now, like dependency and psychotherapy as one example that's not just a like infrequent phenomenon or something that people haven't talked for a long time about. Mm -hmm. Like there's a huge lineage of literature out there across multiple disciplines that talks about dependency between patient and therapist Mm -hmm. in the room. And as a clinician, I think that it's important that people know that and also that they can then start to ask more questions of the literature. Like, well, how do you deal with dependency 
And, and what does research actually say about these things? Yeah, is it yeah. efficacious? You know, is it actually going to help the patient or not? Um, so all of that and more can be found <laughs> on the evidence-based therapist. I'm realizing that you and I could just do a little mini EBT episode right now if we Let's kept just, talking. You know what? No, no. I was actually just thinking we need to clip this and replay it as a promo. <laughs> Are we good? This is wonderful. <laughs> this is wonderful. Yes. Yeah. But that is not our task today. That is not our task. But you got to say one last thing, so I'm going to say one last thing. Okay. Are you ready? Okay. Jen, you can too. <laughs> okay. So I am not a human that really uh, knows how to care much about statistics and research and details in the traditional way in the way that you do however i find a whole lot of depth and support in engaging with it even though it is not my natural inclination Mm. simply because i like knowing why we were taught to do what we were taught to do and why sometimes our intuition starts telling us that maybe we need to adjust some things because the more that I engage with research, the more I discover that our clinical intuition is actually right on with research. And we have been somewhat misled, you guys. (laughs) Not somewhat, like really misled in a lot of ways. And where research is at right now, for most of us, it ends up being a wonderfully disconfirming and confirming experience Mm -hmm. that validates our um, spidey sense as Mm -hmm. therapists. And I want you guys to know that, to, to be able to stand confidently in your intuition and say, actually, here's what the research is saying about this. This is why I still want to treat my clients as full human beings and allow them to develop a real relationship with me, even though school told me that that was a bad idea and that I should be super boundaried and rigid with them. Actually, the research says otherwise now. Yeah. And we want you to know that. So. In, in a very real way, the research backs up our embodied and intuitive experience, which is where my interest lies much more. <laughs> yes. But when we engage with both, we can, you know, bridge that huge divide. Mm. And uh, so for me, going back to the research, even though it is not my natural home, it's not where I, you know, feel the most comfortable, I take so much away from that that then enlivens and gives a lot of depth and a lot of foundation and helps me be even more confident than I already mm-hmm. am about doing what I do <laughs> and actually Beautiful. have a leg to stand on. So, yeah. yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So yeah, go check out Evidence-Based Therapist. <laughs> it's on all of your podcast players now. Thankfully, it finally got on Spotify. Yay. Mm-hmm. And with that, um, let us know what you think. Um, mm-hmm. Even on this podcast, if you're like, hey, I checked out EBT based on your recommendation. This was my experience, good or bad. Mm-hmm. We can handle it. That's true. Um, and if there's any topics that you want us to talk about, absolutely. we want to know that too. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. So today, we're back to it. <laughs> today. Today, we're going to talk about human as organism, which again is kind of our shorthand way of saying. Um, that we are not just brains on a stick that have these neuroses or these fixations or compulsions or whatever that, um, you know, we just have anxiety that comes from the top down or depression or whatever, but that it's actually from an embodied perspective that we have a brain, which is just one organ inside the entire, uh, you know, all encompassing being that's sitting in front of you in psychotherapy and that you yourself are. And so when we come to the task of understanding a symptom or a disorder, quote unquote, or some like difficulty that the person is experiencing in their life, we can't just view it from a top down Mm -hmm. perspective. And you've heard us talk about that on the podcast before of how it needs to be actually more bottom up. But what does bottom up even mean? What does that have to do with um, how we're actually in like interacting with a person sitting in the room because if it's bottom up that means we're talking about like the sensory systems of the body Mm -hmm. which is now we're deep into 
different types of neurons and uh, different types of means of encountering the world. And so what we're going to do today is just kind of ground our understanding of uh, the human as organism inside neurobiology. Mm -hmm. It's going to be really fun. I'm excited. Yeah. So what are your kind of just first thoughts of this topic, human as organism? I just, I think that as soon as this piece of the puzzle comes into place, everything else that we talk about starts making sense. Mm. And so when this piece is missing, um, the other pieces can like kind of feel solid or we understand them, but it doesn't just click and make Mm -hmm. complete sense. Mm -hmm. So when we get into looking at another human being, a client in the room or a person in our lives and we start to, or even ourselves, start to look at, okay, I am not just, you know, a human with these thoughts and, you know, cognitions, but I'm a full organism Mm -hmm. that's wired and oriented in a certain way Mm. and, and created. And then through life with experiences that then gets further developed Mm -hmm. to show up and everything else after that starts to make sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And Melissa, you, um, you know, when we were first talking about what we wanted to put into our um, case conceptualization trainings and things like that, you were very adamant that we needed to talk about this first before anything else. <laughs> I was. We need to talk about this yeah. as a way of grounding the conversation as a yeah. whole. So yeah. what was that for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll kind of include as well, like where I'm at now with thinking about that and why it still feels so important to me to like start with it and also to finish with it and Mm, using Jen's metaphor. Yes. The bookends using Jen's metaphor of the puzzle to me, human as organism is actually like the border, you know, it's the corner pieces and all the pieces between the corner pieces that basically sets the frame for understanding everything else that happens. A really easy analogy is you know, at this point in the evolution of our field, we're all incredibly aware of how important it is to contextualize an individual within the context of their culture, mm. right? That if we separate an individual from the culture that they grew up in, uh, we cease to both understand um, the micro and the macro of what's really going on with them. You cannot understand an individual without looking at the, the whole culture that they come from. Mm. And to me, human as organism is sort of the inverse of that, right? That without understanding that we are rooted in a biological body with bones and cells and flesh and tissue and blood and heart rates and blood sugar and all of that, without that contextualization, we cannot hope to understand everything else that we're looking at, that we take it out of context. And now we have a fish out of water. Um, and you cannot understand what a fish is for unless you understand that it comes from water. Mm. And so, um, to me, it's the contextualization that makes everything else, uh, not only just make sense, um, but shows us what it actually means to live a human existence and have human experiences because all human experiences are a constant, you know, cyclical process between, Um, mental process, biological process, physiological process, spiritual process, like we're all one big thing. Mm. And so to separate any of that um, dilutes our understanding to a point of it being like almost ridiculous. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it just ceases to mean anything. I think we can, we can see it so clearly now as ridiculous, but how long? Oh, I know. Have we (laughs) practiced, you know, like in, in therapy, been practicing in that way or how often how many people are just interacting in the world without that context right yeah and so trying to make sense of symptoms and presentations right and through with no context around mm-hmm. it and this is a mammalian organism right. and what does that mean 
in this. And so now we're trying to assign meaning to it and, um, yeah, reason and understanding to it. And it right. does feel ridiculous mm-hmm. once you have that puzzle piece in there or that, that border. Yeah. Yeah. But otherwise you're just lost in the weeds mm-hmm. trying to make sense of something that's like, OCD. This just doesn't make any sense. It's right. completely irrational. Why are you washing your hands to the point of them bleeding? Yes. Yeah. That doesn't make rational sense. You should irrational. stop it. Right. Yep. And yeah. you yes. know that it doesn't make sense. Like, do you, Right. You could does, say it makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> like your, your like fingernails are a little, you know, like mm-hmm. all of this is actually like you're causing yourself harm. Why are you doing that? Yeah. Right. Without this understanding, I love that idea of like you're just like lost in the weeds of mm-hmm. I don't know, but this person is really upset and I don't know how to help them. Right. I also, and this, I am very aware of how much this could turn into a rabbit trail, so we're not going to chase it, but I am still going to state it, or we can chase it as much as you guys want to. (laughs) I was going to say, I might. Yeah, we're about that. So something that I've been contemplating a lot lately is that, you know, connection between contextualizing us culturally and contextualizing us as human as a biological organism and how many parallels I see there. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why we realized, whoopsie, we have got to culturally contextualize all of our experience. Um, because it is only due to our privilege that we don't have to do that, yeah. right? When we are in a position of privilege, we can get away with ignoring culture, yeah. ignoring cultural realities that anybody that is in a minority position, like the, the idea of ignoring it is erroneous and like ridiculous because you can't. It is so in your face all the time that there's no getting around it. There's no ignoring it. And to me, um, to ignore our biological nature is a act of privilege of the able-bodied. We can get away with ignoring the fact that I'm an organism because it's running so smoothly, I don't have to worry about it. And so then we're talking to clients that are experiencing a malfunction of their organism in some way. Something is going wrong biologically. And as a therapist, if we accidentally sit in this position of privilege and not contextualize it biologically, then we make the same mistake as a white therapist saying to somebody that is not white, well, you should get over that. They didn't mean it personally. Ooh. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Ouch. And so like to me, contextualizing us as organism protects us from making the same mistake that we have made so often in a cultural context, um, in an able-bodied context or, or a, or a, a uh, you know, a body that is doing something other than the standard norm um, and contextualizing it that way. And we don't have to understand in the same way that uh, when we approach cultural issues, it's not about coming with the arrogance of saying, oh, okay, now I understand everything about your culture, so I can describe and define it. Mm. We come with humility that says, I don't know what it's like to be you. Please teach me. Right. And human as organism is the same way. An organism is not a universal thing. And so when we're engaging with a client, it's about learning how their organism has dealt with their experience. Yeah. And if you think about, you know, we're talking on an EMDR podcast right now. So you think about the first three phases and you don't have the human as organism perspective. Mm -hmm. And so you're thinking about preparation, history, taking an assessment through this, like just brain on a stick. Yeah. All you're interested in is the, the experience that that brain on a stick just went through. Right. And then you're going to now go through four through eight and just say, yeah, you should be good. Mm-hmm. But there's a problem because that's not just a brain on a stick. That person is contextualized just as you're saying, Melissa, into their lived experience, which is in a web of social experiences that has persisted, you know, since the beginning of time. Yes. And so we need to be talking about evolution. We need to be talking about epidemiology. We need to be talking about epigenetics. Um, yeah. Genetics. Epigenetics. Absolutely. Yes. Like how the human organism responds to life conscious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
When you were, most of you were sharing and all of that too, what kept coming up for me is the validation of being able to offer the context, how validating that is. And both examples that you're sharing culturally as well as human as organism. Mm -hmm. But when we can offer context and we can accept the context and sit in that for it to not be, well, they didn't mean that, so Mm -hmm. you should get over it Mm -hmm. or you know, in the, in the opposite example, but it's more of a, absolutely. Right. I, your responses or your struggles or your experience in this absolutely makes sense. And I can sit with you in that because I have the context rather than trying to explain it through something that invalidates their experience. Yeah. And I think it also gives us as the therapist, like for me as, uh, as not, as a white person to sit across from and just say, I can only imagine Mm -hmm. what you're going through. Mm -hmm. I I don't have to know. I can sit with you and just be committed to our work together. Um, This just being one example, but committed to our work together as somebody who so desires to know, but I know that I I can't because I'm not you and I'm not in the same, uh, you know, context that you are experiencing the world every Mm -hmm. single day. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, um, once again, this potentially has rabbit trail material in it, so just saying that. I think that uh, one thing that is really, really true, both in kind of our field as a whole and in uh, EMDR, is that we spend a lot of time speaking about what is common and universal to human experience in an effort to find things that are going to work, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the in the conversation of human as organism, we can talk a lot about what is common to being human. Like as a species, we have so much um, that is the same about us. But in the same conversation is also the reality that to be an individual organism means that we have individual ways of responding to an environment. Mm-hmm. And it's it's both. You know, both are incredibly important. But our history as a field is to overly focus on what is common. In fact, even the fact of creating diagnostic criteria yeah. <laughs> has to do with a gross overgeneralization of human individual experience. And mm-hmm. so remembering that that is a trap that we are invited to fall into because of the way that we're trained but remembering that we're speaking to a biological organism means that every minute of their lived experience has shaped every single one of their cells and that equation leads to more diversity than we can possibly imagine yeah and that's an invitation to investigate how they have survived Mm -hmm. we have the framework of how humans often figure out how to survive and a lot of that will be true for them, but everybody's going to have their individual variants of what did they have to do? How mm. did this feel to them? How did they learn to respond and survive and adapt and all of that? And it's the the holding of the frame of what is common with an allowance of the unique and in the, in the, in the individual experience um, that I love kind of putting this idea of human as organism front and center at the beginning of our conceptualization and then always yeah. coming back around to it. Yeah. In all of that, what what I keep hearing come up is what we're saying when we say human is organism Mm -hmm. is that we are oriented around survival. Yes. And I just want to make that point really clear because it can get so complex. We're well-developed organisms at this point. Highly evolved. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't always seem black and white clear that the reason I'm, you know, depressed at home in bed is because I'm trying to survive. Right. How does that work? Right. Like, that doesn't make logical connection? sense. Right. Speaking of brains on sticks, mm-hmm. <laughs> but trying to 
still say like how do we see even deeper than that and know that every presentation comes down to and a desire and orientation towards survival through safety and connection. connection. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. Safety and connection. Mm-hmm. Every single time mm-hmm. it'll come back to that. Yeah. And yeah. that's what was coming up for me as you were talking, Melissa, just about, um, you know, these overgeneralizations that have happened contextually. Well, they were based on some real uh, commonalities across yeah. human organisms, mm-hmm. but we just took it too far to say that then every way a, a uh, being struggles is going to be the same. Right. No. It came from a very similar place, mm-hmm. but the way it actually manifests is very different. Mm-hmm. And so one of those things that I've um, just kind of been so fascinated by is an organism's ne- like need, cellular need for homeostasis, yes. for balance. Yes. Um, you know, if survival is the goal, well, that uh, comes better. Our strategies for survival come better from a place of balance than they do from chaos. Right. And so I will become, you know, the saying, it's amazing what you can get used to. Mm-hmm. Well, that's our beings, like that's our biology's way of saying, yeah, I can integrate this yeah. and make my response to it normal to my system mm-hmm. so that then I can respond to nuance stimuli. Well, and that, like that whole concept, which you and I have, you know, spent a lot of time talking about. Yeah. And if you guys want to read about it, um, there's a book called uh, The Feeling of What Happens by mm, Damasio, uh, which is a beautiful book. Um, he's a neuroscientist. He's not a therapist and it shows, but his story vignettes are great. <laughs> Um, but one of the things that I think is really relevant as trauma therapists and as EMDR therapists about that concept of homeostasis is that part of the reason why biologically we emphasize homeostasis so much is that in order to interact with a chaotic environment, we have to have a stable self, Mm. right? Because in order to know how to interact with all of the changing and the moving, you know, bits of our world, um, we can only feel the, the intensity of that change by having a stable reference point. So our selfhood is developed in order to be that stable reference point. And that means that we get really biologically committed to our selfhood staying the same. And you can see how this starts to get in the way of our therapeutic goals Hmm. (laughs) because all of our biology conspires to not change, Mm -hmm. right? We want to stay consistent in our selfhood, even if that comes at a pretty high cost, because to change my selfhood means that I have to change every thing that I know about the world. And we see this happening in therapy all the time. The wrestling of, well, if I change, then that changes my dynamics relationally. That changes my dynamics at work. That changes the way I have to think about spirituality and the world and culture. And oh my God, I'm going to explode too much. And that's that, uh, that shifting that happens as our stable reference point of selfhood shifts. Then so too does everything else in my entire conceptualization of the universe. And that feels overwhelming to our clients. And that is biologically rooted. Mm-hmm. that's not just my client is being resistant and doesn't want to change. That's every cell of their body saying, if I change, it might kill me. Yes. And that feels like a pretty high price to pay <laughs> Yes. because right now I'm living. Well, yeah. Back yeah. to that OCD, like hand washing to the point of bleeding mm-hmm. the head on a stick version is like, why are you doing that? That's clearly causing you harm. And it's taking a ton of amount of time out of your day. And it's also breeding other strategies that are continuing to perpetuate the chaos. Like, mm-hmm. why are you doing that? When you shift to this perspective, it says, well, actually, this is one of the ways I find balance again. Right. I carry out this mm-hmm. behavior to actually let my being find grounding. Right. So this is why I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. And unless you've got a better strategy for me, yeah. which I know you don't, mm-hmm. I'm going to keep doing it. Keep doing it. Well, yeah. and when selfhood, as you were saying, Melissa, is developed 
from like it, it's developed through that seeking of homeostasis and then bringing in Bridger what you're talking about is the selfhood then gets developed in an attempt to create homeostasis yes. so based on the chaotic environment whatever that chaos then requires to bring balance, mm-hmm. the self becomes that. And that That's becomes right. to develop mm-hmm. around that. So it's not just a, a simple cognitive strategy that says, oh, this makes sense, I'll do this. It becomes who I am right. and what, what makes sense and brings balance and regulation to the chaos I live in. It's mm-hmm. not regulation in a calm, stable environment, mm-hmm. but it's, it's regulation in the chaos that I'm being developed That's in. Right. That's right, which is also why we perpetuate external chaos when our selfhood is developed in response to chaos. That's right. That is the homeostasis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can totally tell that we've all been writing SIP too. (laughs) (laughs) Feels so good to talk about it. Because yeah, for the last fifteen minutes, you've been hearing a pretty good synopsis of what we cover in SIP two. If you haven't taken one, you have to take one to take two. Uh, so this was an accidental infomercial. <laughs> yeah, it didn't, but it's so Oopsie. central to the way we understand. It, is. it really is. Um, just every disorder with this, but, and I want to kind of circle back, take another loop deeper on this idea of homeostasis and like where it comes from, because mm-hmm. you know, there's that age old debate, uh, which is finally coming to an end between nature and nurture. Right. And if you think about human as organism, you're talking about a mass of cells that uh, came from an an origin in its conception in utero, Mm -hmm. that then giving it the basic ingredients that it would have for its original homeostasis. Mm -hmm. So then that being the nature, that, Melissa, I think you mentioned a little bit earlier, that that then is shaped through every single experience throughout Mm -hmm. the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. So... It's not about new cells coming into being. It's about reshaping what is already there. To the degree that it changes our DNA. Yes. And I think that's sort of a point where there's still some confusion. Um, There's this idea that our DNA is actually a set thing. fixed. Yeah, that doesn't change. And and that's not true, you guys. Thankfully. Yeah, thank thank God, right? (laughs) Um, And so for better or worse, through experience, our DNA replicates differently pre and post experience. And so you are a different you after big events in your life because your DNA is changed in response to your environment. This is how evolution happens on the micro scale mm. all the time. Um, and so remembering that like it's it's not just a, a conceptual idea that we're shaped by our experience. We mean it very literally. Yes. Like very literally. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And that to me is why talking about trauma matters at all. Mm-hmm. Like... Trauma really doesn't matter outside of its effect on the organism. It'd be like talking about every other experience that happens out in the world. Mm -hmm. Why do we only talk about certain ones in therapy? Mm -hmm. Well, these are the ones that the organism, the human is holding as these are the ones I reference constantly as sort of indicators of my worth, of my boundaries, of my Mm -hmm. being, of the membrane that is me between my internal world and my out, my, my external world. And so trauma, the reason we care about it is because it has one of the most profound, direct, and powerful influences on the shaping of the organism. Yep. Which means it's not that trauma is identified through a certain criteria and therefore it then has that impact. It is identified as trauma because of the impact that it has. So we start with whatever event creates that reaction in that organism. Mm -hmm. It could have been the you know a huge event, a small event. It could be anything. 
It's the impact that it has that then gives us the ability to call it trauma. That's right. right. So we're not taking a criteria that says, well, it has to meet this and this and this to say it's going to then be trauma. Right. It's however that individual nervous system, that human experienced that event and the impact that it had mm-hmm. right on their bodies on their nervous systems that then make it traumatic yeah. yeah i love this perspective because our definition of trauma um that we've used from the literature is that it's anything that happens that's too much too soon too much for too long or too little for too long mm-hmm. particularly when in the context of overwhelming affect emotional experience without secure attunement yeah. mm-hmm. that right there is a biological mammalian definition of trauma mm-hmm. The reason that it had the effect that it did is because it was all of those criteria plus the fact that it was overwhelming to me, meaning that it took me out of my homeostatic balance and I couldn't find any reference point. Right. I couldn't find secure attunement. And so I walked away with it yeah. completely different. And that like that definition of trauma, I feel like is such a good example of what we mean by still holding to the universal truth that trauma matters, right? but also allowing so much room for the individual experience, right? So that, that definition defines it very, very uh, directly, but in reference to the individual experience. And I love what you're saying, Jen, and I feel like, you know, this idea of you can only uh, define a trauma after it's happened. Like we can't mm-hmm. actually say whether something will be traumatic to us before it's not happened or not. <laughs> which Zero is, degree yeah. of confidence. Yeah, which yeah. is why, you know, any list of things that are traumatic, like here are uh, things that will cause PTSD is uh, not real. Like that's not real. <laughs> not um, real. Yeah, I almost said a different word there because um, that's how I feel about it. But <laughs> I'm really learning to try to edit more. Um, At least on the microphone. Yes. Right. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> working on it. Work in progress. Um, But I think that like that, that way of understanding is an invitation to let the person in front of us tell us what was traumatic to them, but gives us enough of a framework to invite them into self-reflection so that they can discover what has been traumatic. And that like is part of the art of being a therapist is we have to have enough universal truth that we feel confident in. But not so much that we lose the ability to really respond to the individual human in front of us. And that's a weird balancing act that we do to hold that universal while also allowing the individual. Mm-hmm. And that this concept of human as organism, I think, is like exactly what that's about. And when right. I think about how that shows up in EMDR, the art of leading a client through the EMDR process in a way that holds that framework for them, but still lets them, you know, respond organically from their own system With without imposing yeah. systems. Yeah. Yeah. By not imposing our version of what uh, should have happened, could have happened, you know, or what we would have done, not imposing on it so that the truth of their individual experience is what's actually getting processed. Mm-hmm. And I think part of why EMDR is as effective as it is, is because it does a good job of holding that macro universal framework um, of what it's like for a human being to go through experiences like this, but then leave so much room for individual um, expression of that mm-hmm. and response to that. Um, and really supports the therapist in that weird dance that we do between those two tensions, right? Of, of holding the frame, but also not intervening too much. Um, yeah. Well, and what I want to emphasize with how, how much trauma can impact the organism, just as great of an impact happens from those early attachment experiences. Oh, yeah. The good ones 
too, mm-hmm. right? It's not just trauma that is shaping and having an impact on this organism. It is any life experience and especially early attachment experiences, which is kind of foreshadowing into our next episode yeah. that we'll talk about, but also connects with the eight phases. When we're looking at resourcing being a necessity, it's so much more than just a calm place in a container. Mm-hmm. It's saying really what adaptive resources and really attachment based resources does this organism need in order to be able to then restructure the way those traumatic experiences are stored with a lack of resources in that area or a lack of adaptive memory networks early early in life it doesn't matter how much processing we do on a trauma they're not going to be able to make sense of it in an adaptive way Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's so true Mm -hmm. well so i feel like there's like so many different directions to go with this topic. <laughs> I know. I'm curious, like, what else do we want to say I about this? I feel like we only hit bullet point one on the outline. <laughs> I know, that's why we, I'm checking We in actually with you. covered it. Did, oh, we? did we? Okay. We did. Organically. That's yes. great when we do it organically. Yes. 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 Um, you know, the perhaps where I want us to kind of land the plane is just on what, you know, if we could just speak a little bit to the eight phases specifically in this episode regarding human as organism and this conceptualization, like what it actually means to have this view versus the brain on a stick top down Mm -hmm. perspective. Mm -hmm. Because for me, you know, so much of my understanding of what it means to be humans comes from this bottom up perspective. And what we mean by that is that there are all of these different systems in the body that are gathering information about my internal state and my external state and how those two contribute to my overall like sense of being. Yeah. All of those systems are shaped over time through experience, which is really, really important. And we don't have time to go into that. If you're coming from a traumatic history, those systems are going to be pre-wired to detect threat where it isn't. That's just how the body works with uh, memory. And therefore it's going to be sort of like pre Uh, oriented towards the traumatic. Mm -hmm. And so that is the information that's coming up into the brain shaped through experience. And so then the process of affrontation and affrontation begins and your brain begins to integrate that traumatic stimuli, quote unquote, into the rest of its parts. Can you tell people what affrontation and affrontation is? Yeah, very simply, afferent, if you just remember back to physiology, afferent. If you took physiology, not everybody did, Bridger. (laughs) Okay, well, I think that all therapists should. That's just my like... Will you go change curriculum? Oh yeah, that's what you're trying to do. I am doing it now. (laughs) But yes, the just uh, afferent is going up into the brain. Mm -hmm. Efferent is going out into the body. Mm -hmm. I just think of F like E F as exit, like it's going out of the body or out of the brain into Mm -hmm. the body. Yeah. E for exit. So in that, um, if you think about those systems being shaped through traumatic experience, that means that the stimuli that's coming in through afferentation up into the brain is already checked as traumatic. Like it's Mm -hmm. like, Nope, it's too much. It's it's, we're responding with inflammation in our body because we believe we're under threat, even Mm -hmm. though we might not be. That means then that all of the systems in the brain as the information travels up into uh, the brainstem, then the limbic brain, then up into the, the neocortex, all of that is getting this signal of trauma, 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 trauma. That means then that the efferent uh, behavior that comes out of the brain is also going to be responsible to that traumatic stimuli. 
And then after that, <laughs> the loop begins. The again. loop begins because what we what we experience in our behavior um, is going to myelinate those behavioral pathways and make them more likely to occur than in the future. And yep. that is exactly how we get into um, those cycles of trauma and behavior, one perpetuating the other, and it gets really, really. Um, complicated in terms of chicken and egg issues. Um, and those are so relevant for treatment. And I think one thing that I just want to say that feels very supportive to me is that it doesn't actually matter, uh, where you start sometimes in terms of focusing on what caused this or the behavior that is coming out of it. As long as we remember that we're working with how this is held in the whole nervous system. So it's not overly focusing on one or the other. It's getting into that network to actually do the work on every part of how the nervous system is stored. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from there to me, the eight phases just are completely sort of, um, almost rewritten mm-hmm. <laughs> of like, what do we actually care about? Yeah. What do know, we focus on? We practice mm-hmm. EMDR from a preparation first mm-hmm. standpoint. And that mm-hmm. I feel is the result of our conviction that bottom up, uh, experience is real. Right. That it's not about this history taking first of getting this, uh, you know, top down orientation to what you remember happened right. and are making conjectures about why <laughs> it affected you. Yes. Um, but we're going from a preparation standpoint first, because that's going to get the body to start communicating what happened to it, why, and what I need in order to feel safe mm-hmm. from there. Then our assessment on into the, the reprocessing stages, all of that then just follows suit. Mm-hmm. We now start paying attention to the body and integrating it into, uh, the lived experience of the human and the left brain articulated, uh, standpoint will catch up. Mm-hmm. we will integrate that then with explicit language and we begin again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that shifting of what are we paying attention to in each of the eight phases, it changes the assessment phase. hundred oh, percent. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we can still go through the protocol of, of asking those questions in order as they come, but we're really honing into not what the client's actually saying when you have Verbally, them bring up the right. image. And when you ask them on a scale of zero to 10, like it's not just verbally what they're saying, but we're noticed as we go through prompting their system and activating that piece of the memory, yeah. what's really happening? What's showing up in the room? Mm-hmm. What are we sensing from them? Not just what are they verbally reporting? So I just thought of like a super fun sort of mental experiment that we'll never do in real life because it's rude, but just as a fun mental experiment, if you imagine trying to predict the outcome of an EMDR session, uh-huh. right? And, and you had two options. You could either observe the human being that's about to go through EMDR, just doing whatever, ordering mm. at a restaurant, right? Or look at a filled out assessment worksheet, but never see the human being, which one would give you more information? hundred percent the human, the human. <laughs> watching them. Yeah. No questions asked, yeah. but I think you see my point here. Yeah. I, I find it a useful mental experiment of like how little it actually matters. Yeah. Like it, it is not the point at all. And how, and like the, I don't know if you guys uh, could hear this in their voice, but visually both these two rolled their eyes at me when I said that, <laughs> uh, like, because it just scoff. feels, yeah, yeah. There was the total scoff. Maybe you scoffed at me at the other end of the, the listening here as well. I hope you did. I hope you did. Um, but I think, that highlights a point that to us, it just feels so obvious that it's actually the 
observation of the nervous system that matters and what's actually showing up and presenting in the human being in this moment that matters way more than their answers to any question. And those questions serve a greater purpose than to get the answer. Right. The questions themselves help activate the memory network, which the assessment is meant to be, you know, brought in immediately before reprocessing. Mm -hmm. So when we're bringing up those pieces of the memory intentionally with the questions, it's not really even about the answer on the other side. Yes. It's about activating and waking that up so we can immediately go into the reprocessing. I feel like I want you to say that three more times just so everybody really hears it. We're not actually going to do that. Pause, rewind, play. (laughs) (laughs) That that. really, really matters. Yes. Yeah. Well, and it matters because it's, it's like that's EMDR, the uh, protocolized, you know, manualized treatment process of mm-hmm. EMDR that's, that's standing on the neuroscience of memory reconsolidation. Mm-hmm. You have to activate in the body the actual affect mm-hmm. before it can ever be reconsolidated, before right. it can ever be changed. Right. And so the assessment phase is intended to activate, yeah. not get answers. Activate. Which is why it should only take a few minutes and not 20 minutes while you're negotiating which cognition actually fits best. Preach it, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) We should be just moving right through, waking it up, and then starting the reprocessing. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is a thing that I've said a lot. And I was trying to remember the other day where this comes from, and I finally remembered. So I'll tell you after I say it where it comes from. Um, But the the quote is, um, our bodies can only release what it's currently feeling. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to feel every single bit with the full intensity of previous trauma in order for it to release. Um, But if you're going to try to release some anger, you're going to have to feel some anger. Like it has to be activated in some way in your in your body currently in order for your nervous system to go. Oh, yeah, we don't need that anymore. We're going to release that stored energy and let it go. Um, and in EMDR, that is exactly the point. Mm-hmm. Assessment is just about bringing it up. And so it's present in the body and activated in the nervous system so that it can move through and be released. Like that is the point. And by the way, that, uh, came from a Peruvian shaman, <laughs> very interesting source of, it's very intuitive <laughs> of insight. It is. And, yes. and from, uh, indigenous, uh, healing perspective, that makes absolute sense. They don't even care. I shouldn't say they don't care. They don't focus at all on the actual event. What they focus on is the the way that it is stored um, in the spirit and the soul, mm. as they would conceptualize it, and we would conceptualize as conceptualize it as the body or the nervous system. It's how it's stored that's mattered, and not mm. actually what happened. Um, and so, from an indigenous healing practice, they're doing the exact same thing. They activate it so that it's being felt, and then invite it to release through their modalities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. There's that. There mm. is that. There's this is fun. Really yeah. fun. Human Beautiful conversation. Organism. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If you um, want to hear us talk like so much more <laughs> about, about all this, of this, listen to more episodes, but also our SIP training. training yeah. This is literally the some of the very first slides mm-hmm. that yeah. we're talking yeah, about. Like, Hi, welcome to the tra- training. Uh, there's a few slides on, hey, you might experience some overwhelm, take care of yourself, and then we go straight into human yeah. Guess what? You're an organism. That's yeah. right. You. Body. We and have bodies. They matter. When this uh, episode releases will be uh, just under a month away from offering another mm-hmm. SIP one in December yeah. here in uh, Springfield. Come hang our, out with us at our institute. Yeah, our building. Super fun. So uh, check out our website for for that 
information. Yeah. That's December 2 through 4. You could join us through Zoom on that as yeah, well. Yeah, it's a hybrid mm-hmm. option. So mm-hmm. we'll have in-person and the Zoom options as well. Yeah. And then afterwards, as always, you'll get access to content uh, through our uh, online uh, learning delivery system, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Kajabi, we're mm-hmm. big fans of it. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, check us out on that. And then I yeah. think... Well, and the other thing we wanted to just remind you guys is as you're listening to these episodes, if you ever want to leave a comment or rate us, that yes. would be greatly appreciated. As long as it's a five out of five. <laughs> if it's less you than know, that, then don't do if it. If you have any complaints, <laughs> please let us, give us a chance to fix them. Yeah, maybe through email, notify <laughs> yeah, right. us of that. And then... No, but really, actually, any ratings, right. any comments, um, it really helps promote the podcast and us kind of boost our listing and where we're at mm-hmm. so we can get this out to more people. So we would love for you to do that. I appreciate that. But also um, just giving us feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us what you're liking, maybe what you don't like as much, what, what you, you want, want more of. of. Yes. 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 So we want to hear back from you guys and we try to be really responsive. We're preparing for a couple of Q&As coming up mm-hmm. because we have seen a lot of your questions coming in. Yes. And uh, we definitely want to speak to those. So we're um, we definitely will be getting those to you yeah. before long. Very soon. Yeah. So yeah. before we sign off, I want to offer a book resource because we like giving people free resources. Well, I guess this isn't free, but you can go you buy, buy it on it. Amazon. <laughs> well, and on Amazon, it's like six bucks. So this is a good one. But if you're interested in that, that whole idea of um, the development of selfhood and contextualizing it and that connection to cultural contextualization, if all of that sort of piqued your interest uh, like it did mine, there's a really good book called Constructing the Self, Constructing America. Also, there's a really fun critique in there about how psychotherapy was developed to aid in consumerism and capitalism. Topic for a different day. There it is. Um, But that is by a man named uh, Philip Cushman, and uh, it's a really great resource for that whole topic. Not EMDR-related at all, but relevant for anybody that's a therapist in the U.S. or in a westernized culture. So that's all I got. There it is. Uh Thank you for listening, guys. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to notice that at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time. If you enjoy what you hear on these episodes and are interested in speaking with one of us at Beyond Healing Institute, we would love for you to reach out about our consultation opportunities. Of all the many things that we do, consultation is one of the things that we enjoy most. We love supporting other clinicians in conceptualizing their cases from a neurobiological and nervous system-informed perspective. We offer individual and group consultation for somatic integration and processing, as well as for EMDR therapy. Individual consultation is a great way to get personal time to reflect on your cases and how you and your work influence one another. Group consultation offers so many opportunities for learning and connection with other like-minded clinicians. Our greatest mission at Beyond Healing Institute is to offer opportunities for professional development and create a supportive community in the field of mental health. Beyond Healing Institute is excited to announce that we're moving. Okay, well, 
we're not moving our building, but we're moving our trainings, continuing education resources, and community events to Canvas. This will help you as a member of the community to stay in contact with other members of the Beyond Healing community, while also providing a platform that brings consistency and convenience to all of our trainings and course offerings. Canvas is an online learning management system that will be your home base for all things Beyond Healing, as well as a virtual campus that will house all of our trainings and continuing education resources. We're so excited to invite you to our virtual campus on Canvas, and we hope to see you there soon.